When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Performance Anxiety. This episode features Alexa Hunter. She sang for Disturbed Furniture in the late 70s and early 80s. After playing some of the most famous clubs in New York, the band recorded one single and then disbanded. Alexa left for California to pursue other endeavors, but when an exhibit at the Museum of Modern Art used some of her video footage of the band playing in these clubs, it sparked a renewed interest in Disturbed Furniture. They've recorded a new EP, and you can check it out and buy it at their website, disturbedfurniture.com. Check them out on Facebook or on Instagram at Disturbed Furniture. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram at Performance ANX. We're also on Facebook at Performance Anxiety. Subscribe, rate, and review, please. And also, check out our merchandise at performanceanx.threadless.com. Here's Alexa Hunter of Disturbed Furniture. Don't change that dial. This is Alexa Hunter of Disturbed Furniture for Performance Anxiety. It's four. <laughs> now, I've got a couple friends out there, and they say it almost never rains out there. How do you guys cool off? It's a desert. And uh, yesterday, it required actually going in the ocean to cool off. Oh, my god! I'm very lucky that, you know, I have a car, and I can drive it, and in <laughs> half an hour, be in the water. Oh, that's good. That's so, good. <laughs> you know, and it cools off at night. Oh, well, that's good. It cools off at night, which is not always the case on the East Coast where I grew up. Yeah, and that's that's uh, and let me get into that in one second because I have a I have a couple questions for you about that. Um, heard some stuff from my my friends out there, but uh, so uh, what was my point? Oh yeah, I was going to ask you. Um, speaking of L.A. at night, I have some friends out there, and uh, they say that this like the sidewalks roll up pretty early. It's not as like a late night town as New York is. No, of course not. Of course not. First of all, it's not that kind of a city. It's not all condensed like New York. And New York just has always been a night spot. Right. A hot spot, night spot. And Los Angeles and California, it's the daytime. It's the light of the day. Sunny California. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, okay. So I just... When when they told me that, I was like, that can't be. There's, I can't imagine there's, there isn't stuff going on at night. It's just well, there probably is, but it's probably very underground. Like, um, there is a club where where we're actually going to play. It's not an advertised uh, venue at all. It's like a private club. Okay, and it's mostly an after hours club. People still go out. And I think probably after hours in LA begins at eleven. Oh, okay. <laughs> so it's like a speakeasy. You got to knock on the door and give a password. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Those are they. They are littered throughout the city. So there are there's a small contingent of late night people that still live here. Okay. Well, apparently those are not my friends out in LA. So <laughs> mostly, mostly they're not my friends either. But. Yeah. <laughs> So once in a while, but you, you didn't grow up out there. You grew up on the East coast, right? Very much an East coast kid. Yeah. Is it New York? I was born and raised in New York city. And, um, for eight years, seven or eight years, we lived in outside of Boston and in Minnesota. Okay. You know, it was, it was about my dad's work. And then luckily he got a job back in New York city. So, because I'm a city kid. Yeah. 
Yeah. Did you, did you were you naturally drawn to to music? Did you did you learn an instrument when you were young or? Yeah, yeah. You know, I I started piano lessons when I was little, and I think I got my first acoustic guitar when I was about seven. So by the time I was seven or eight, I was already you know thinking, not even consciously thinking, but it was it was getting into the blood. And um, my parents were not musical at all; they just had good taste in records. Ah, uh, that sounds like my parents. <laughs> not musical at all my dad's particularly was terrible but no no so at not what point- musical at all but but i do want to i do want to name drop one thing my yeah. mother was amused to a very famous composer named leonard bernstein you might have heard of him really and when she first moved to new york from chicago she was going to art school and one of her roommates was Leonard Bernstein and wow. his one of his first pieces of published music is a song cycle called I Hate Music and it's dedicated to my mother That's awesome. She wasn't musical, but she was a muse. That's amazing. Oh, my gosh. I didn't find any of that in my research. I'll tell you that. No, it's uh, you have to look pretty hard. Yeah. (laughs) Go to the source. So when did you start performing out in public? Ah, well, um, you know, I did I did theater in high school. I so I got interested in this idea of being on stage when I was 14 or 15 and was also playing music at home. The first time I started playing publicly was when I was about 18 coffee shops. Um, I was not, I, I had a very limited repertoire. Okay. That, that didn't go very far. (laughs) Really not, not a, not a great guitarist. I'm functional. I can write on the guitar, but, I can't really do whole sets. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, and so then you started gravitating towards singing then and being yes, a front person. Yes. Okay. So the singing was already sort of gathering steam. When I was in high school, uh, one of my teachers had a mother who was an opera teacher. She taught voice, but mostly okay. opera. And so that was the first time I started studying the voice was when I was about 17 and then when I was living in London as a student, I uh, was living with some musicians, but they were doing more jazz. They were more in the jazz genre. And I always had a place in my heart and still have a place in my heart for the American songbook, the jazz right. standards. Um, so I was I was doing some of that kind of singing, but not publicly. And then it was 1977 and the Sex Pistols came out. And I went to my first punk rock concert. And were you in London at this time? I was in London wow. for a study abroad and was very impacted by that. I didn't get out to clubs very much, but the few times I did, I was just smacked, knocked out by the music. Oh, um, yeah. I think the first concert I saw there, the first punk rock, was The Damned. Oh, wow. Now that's a show oh. to see for your first one. If you want to get indoctrinated into punk, that's the show. Right? Right, right, right. And it was, it, was, it was such a breath of fresh air. You know, I couldn't stand so much of the music that was being played on the radio. Yeah, getting overproduced and... and overproduced and overstructured. And maybe? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That too, yeah. So, all right, so the Dan brought you into punk, and when did you start playing with bands okay so then i um i went back to college after i was in london but i knew that i didn't really want to be in college so i transferred to college in new york city and that was just the gateway drug to being back in new york and getting it started moved down to the east village dropped out of college um and 
started singing backup in bands. You know, okay. you would literally open the back of the Village Voice and answer ads. There you go. So um, the first band that I that actually worked and performed in clubs and did a little bit of touring was called Mandy Doll. You didn't find that in your research? No, I did not. Oh, Mandy Doll. So she was um, this woman who wrote songs. They had clever lyrics. She could not sing. So it was sort of in between (laughs) spoken word and white girl rap. Interesting. Uh, You know, this was like 1979, maybe. Um, But I started getting access to what it would take to rehearse on a regular basis and get good musicians and book clubs. So I was, I was learning on that job, but it was, it was short lived. It was um, not my type of music. It was too, too cute, too clever, Uh too pop. Um, And I wanted my own music to be done, not somebody else's. So is that when you started putting together what would be, Come disturb furniture. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know this this whole time when I was singing back up with Mandy Doll and with another band that didn't go anywhere, the Insertions. Um, <laughs> Always love the names. Uh, Those are great. I know, I know. Nothing wrong with the name. There were other problems. Yeah. <laughs> so I was already um, hanging out at the Mud Club and at Club Fifty Seven, and kind of getting getting in gear for having my own band. I knew that's what I wanted to do. It was just a matter of finding the right people. And so the first Disturbed Furniture... Okay, so first of all, the name Disturbed Furniture. Where did that come from? I remember pretty clearly we were rehearsing. and So the band was already formed. We already had a bass player and a drummer and two guitarists. And we were rehearsing in somebody's really dank basement in the East Village. (laughs) And there was this awful couch, one of those modular things that could move around. And um, the word disturbed popped up and furniture, and they met in the middle. And hey, Well, there you go. And they're still together after all these years. It was inspiration from a dank basement. Now, yeah. the first show, it was... You Club Fifty Seven. Club Fifty Seven. It was you, a bass player that you had met at Mud Club. Yep, Tony uh, ZB. Tony ZB and a pickup guitarist. That, that sounds that sounds really improvisational. It it was it was pretty rough, you know. I don't think there was a lot of rehearsing. I think we had three songs. Okay. And oddly <laughs> enough, one of those songs is back in the repertoire. Really? And it's actually on the EP. It was kind of a sentimental move, but um, yeah, it's, right. on the, it's on the new EP. So the EP is new and old. So the, the first performance was at a, um, a night of Dada music. Okay. At Club 57. At the club, every night was a different theme night. So, you know, if you wanted to do something, it wasn't that hard to find a night where you could fit in your plan for piece of performance art or an art exhibit and most things only went up once okay people would do very elaborate performance work and it was done once and some of it only a small fraction of it actually got photographed or filmed you were one of the the few that were filmed and it's become a an exhibit so but i want want to get into that in a second but i kind of want to learn more about the early days of the band and I'm going to take a guess that the song that made it back to the repertoire and the EP is Hit or a Miss. Yes, it is. Man. That was my, my first song. Did do some research. <laughs> and we actually have a video coming out, uh, which we used. We, we were planning on making, you know, I was trying to make a rock video. This was 1980 or 81. Um, but I didn't have money, so it never got edited. 
But we okay. shot this great footage. My friend Jeff O'Connor, who I had met in London, who has grown up to become a great filmmaker, documentary and features. And he shot us at six in the morning after a night at the Mud Club. Oh, wow. We being Tony, the bass player, Stephanie, who became our rhythm guitarist, and about seven other people that had been up all night. And I convinced them to come <laughs> dance around in Chinatown for no money. Maybe who I want to do that? Coffee. Hey, I mean, who wouldn't want to do that? <laughs> for a rock video. Exactly. You have to understand, this was, this was the Stone Age. Uh, we... Rock video was a very new idea. Yeah. You could make these little films with a soundtrack, no dialogue. It was very new. I don't know if MTV even existed when we shot this. I would have to really figure out the dates. I, yeah, if it was if that about the same time as your first EP, your first single, then it would yeah, probably before it would predate MTV for sure. And um, and we were we were slightly horrified at this idea of having to make videos because it seemed like a cheap shot. Oh, really? Like, oh, really? It's that important what you look like? Ah, OK. I, that makes sense then. Yeah. With, especially with the uh, the punk aesthetic. But then, you know, then people got into it and enjoyed it. And um, it certainly took off in a lot of ways when we got into the new wave and people started dressing up and, you know, fashion was always embedded in the music. Certainly, you know, I mean, the sex pistols were a great example of that, yeah. of, you know, of Malcolm McLaren shaping. Put the packaging together. Yeah. Packaging. Yeah. Right. right. Now being Westwood. Yeah. And then, so you around that time that you started playing and opening for some of the other bands in the area like Blondie and the Go Go's. Oh, we and never opened for Blondie. Blondie, then that must be no, not us. No. Oh, okay. So, oh, I'm, uh, I'm looking at the, it was the Go Go's, the Stranglers, the Witch, the Go -Go's, Psychedelic Furs. That's what I was Stranglers, Psychedelic Furs. That so, how does that happen? Are they touring and are, are you like the 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 house band that's opening up for them or are you just no, contacting they didn't them? Have house, they didn't have house bands. They had, um, these booking agents at that time, um, like at Haraz, Ruth Polsky, who sadly, I don't want to get into that. It would be a, a very sad diversion to tell the story of what happened to Ruth Polsky, but maybe I will. Um, okay. she, she was amazing ear and she had her ear on the pulse of Britain and was bringing over these unknown bands that maybe had a single out. Maybe they had one little album. Yeah. Um, and you know, the, the pairing would be with an unsigned or a not that well-known local band to open for them. That okay. was just the balance. Um, so we got lucky I think we had already played Hurrah on another occasion, um, and she put us on the bill with the psychedelic furs. I guess we had a little bit of psychedelic ambiance to our music, um, and it was a good combination, and it was a great night. We had a star-studded audience. David Bowie was there, not to see us, of course, but, you know. <laughs> Still. He was checking out Richard Butler and uh, one of the Sex Pistols. Okay. Wow. So we, we had good audience at some of these clubs as the opening band. Did that is that what led to going to the studio to record your first single? I would say yeah. We were you know, it just seemed the um excuse me, I've been drinking That's fine. soda. <laughs> trying to stay hydrated. You know, having a record was uh it was like a calling card and um the offers that we were getting were not good from a couple of labels were reaching out to us but we thought you know it was it was the do-it-yourself times yeah absolutely and a lot of bands were putting out their own singles it wasn't like we were this odd entity that figured out how to do your own 45 
it was sort of um, a regular thing. If you had a band and you were on some sort of upward trajectory, the logical thing was to get some vinyl yeah. to get to the next. And a 45 wasn't that much of a commitment in the recording studio, you know. Okay. And so was that something you guys had to pull together your own funding to do? Wow. Yes, we did. So you guys are probably playing several times a night. And, and, and some oh, awesome no, oh, no, I, I don't think we played several times. We didn't play that much. I, you know, I don't. The, the reason I asked is because I, in, in uh, talking to some other, uh, the punk band, people from the punk bands of that era, they're saying places like CBGB, they would play you know, two, three sets a night. And uh, it, it was, it was crazy. Hmm. I remember that we did two or three sets a night. I don't know who you were talking to, but I, I don't remember doing multiple sets, but it's very possible that we did because my memory is. <laughs> <laughs> how, now, how often would you play in a week? How many nights per week would you be up? Just once a week. Okay. You know, we weren't we weren't doing more than once a week. Why just one single? Was it just a, a money issue or? It was probably a money issue and probably we were, I mean, we did other recordings that didn't get pressed and we're actually going to put them on our website because um, some of them are good. It just, it, it was a matter of, it was a, it was a matter of a couple things. The band changed. So there was one lineup in the beginning that included this fabulous guitarist, Phil Schoenfeld, great songwriter. He wrote information. He, he now lives in Prague and he has about 15 CDs. Oh, wow. He's, he's quite successful. And Philip left the band to start his own band. He was with Disturbed Furniture for about a year, I think. And okay. then he started his own band called Camille Rouge with Barry Myers, who okay. was the DJ that came over with The Clash. He was uh, the bass player. Oh, wow. And um, so when Philip left, there's a shift of the music. You know, we don't really want to do his songs anymore. He's got his own band. Although we, I think we continued to do Information, which was the single. Right. Um, so the music begins to shift when the players begin to shift. And then the next incarnation, the next lead guitarist was uh, a terrible drug addict. So that brought in instability. He was fabulously talented. Sadly, he just couldn't handle sobriety. Yeah. Um, and in fact, he just died last year. Oh, goodness. I'm so sorry. And, uh, yeah, and I, I'm sad that I didn't try and find him before he passed away. Um, very, very talented. But that was an instability kind of in the middle of those years. And then when we got stable again, it was again, you know, the shifting going on with what are, are we going more funk? Are we getting more world music in there? And then deciding on material. It, it all is a bit of a blur now, but I think the recordings, the other recordings that we did weren't, uh, weren't quite ready for pressing. And then okay. the band broke up. It was all very fleeting. So what, what caused the breakup of the band? Well, you know, I think it's a matter of, of uh, me feeling overwhelmed with the, the dynamics of the various players um, and feeling like, well, maybe I need to just be on my own. Maybe this is too hard and it's going to be better for me as a singer to just do cabaret stuff. As I said earlier, you know, I love jazz and I was thinking, well, maybe I'll go more in that direction. Um, and I also always had a theatrical bent. So I started when I did end the band around 1983, um, Lots of other stuff was happening. There was a there was a big club cabaret scene, and I got involved with this artist named Gaylord, and we put on these grand, festive performance pieces oh, wow. that were musicals in nightclubs. Um, that was you know that was our world, and it was very different than the rock and roll I'd been doing, but it was equally. Um, Fulfilling, exciting. What's wrong with these kids today? Hits 
and then you decided to move to Los Angeles. Yeah. How? I. At what? When would that? When did that happen? That happened in '87. I was um, I was feeling like the East Village was just too small, and I wanted a more expansive taste of the world. Um, I was acting then, so I thought it would be good for the acting, and I thought the sense. music would would do well there. And I was actually very wrong. I was probably going to be better off staying in New York. I probably would have had more action if I had stayed in New York. But I found other things that you, I like. You teach as well, right? Um, I'm I'm kind of on a hiatus. I'm only teaching part time now. But I did become a teacher. I went back to school and finally finished college, and then got a <laughs> master's degree and started writing and teaching and and the music sort of faded out because I thought I think when I was in my late 30s I thought okay time to time to grow up I also had a kid and that was part of the influence was you know being getting a real job yeah they'll, they'll make you grow up pretty quick yes yeah. I think you you have a couple I got three Three, four, wow. 14, 15, 16. Irish triplets? Yeah. <laughs> I think we almost coined that phrase when they when my third one was born. Wow. Yeah. No time, no time to rest. No. It's you know, it's it's amazing because they all go through everything at the same time. It's two girls and a boy. The boy's right in the middle. And so they all go through just about everything at the same time. And it's on one hand, it's horrible because <laughs> they're all teenagers at the same time and they're all wow. testing us at the same time. But on the other hand, it's amazing because they're very close and they kind of support each other through whatever they're going through. And uh, and plus, whatever they're going through, we get it all over with at once. We get we, <laughs> we have a rough couple of years and then it's right. done. Right. <laughs> so. Well, mazel tov. Oh, I thank mean, you. God. <laughs> I only have one, and uh, <laughs> that was a lot for me. I think sometimes, you know, you've heard this before. When you have two, they can play with each other. They can entertain each other. When you have one, it's almost more work because yeah. they don't have that sibling to bounce off of. I Yeah, I, I can I totally believe that. I absolutely believe that. Now, so what were you teaching when you started your that career? Well, I started out as a music teacher at a Lutheran a, a Lutheran church in Hawthorne where the Beach Boys are from. Oh, cool. And that was very odd. Um, <laughs> very, very odd, very odd teaching religious music, you know, yes. as a, as a pagan, it was, it was a weird fit, but, <laughs> but it was a job. Yeah. It was a job. And then I, and I was going to graduate school. So, you know, it worked. Um, and then I became an English teacher. I got my master's in English and, um, and I, I think my favorite demographic was high school. I liked the high school brain. Really? Oh, interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I had I had some fun in those years. I taught only at public schools. Okay. And I taught some pretty hardcore kids. Um, you know, kids who had been in jail and oh, wow. kids who kids who had already had had kids, you know. Oh my gosh. Oh, um, yeah, for for three years I taught continuation, which is the school you go to when you flunk out of the regular high school. Okay, right? yeah, that. So, um, yeah, well, but you know what? It was it was um, it was great for me because I didn't want to be a traditional English teacher, and I got a lot of freedom. I'm to sure, teach yeah. in in uh, in less in in more alternative ways. That. That sounds amazing. And now now you mentioned that you also write. Uh, what have you written and and uh, is it Well, when published? I when I yeah, I mean I think I've always written this sort of fragmented poetry, some of which becomes songs. Um but I started really seriously writing short stories and essays when I was in graduate school and I I continued that for about 10 or 12 years and got a few things published, but I go through phases. I, um, 
I'm now actually, when I'm not doing the music, I became a jewelry maker and a jewelry designer. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I work a lot with metal and lapidary. I actually cut the raw stuff and wow. shape it and polish it. So the writing is sort of off to the side now. Um, the, the songwriting is, is happening, but I'm yeah. not writing essays or stories. So you just, no, throughout your entire life, you've just been keeping those creative juices flowing and, and just in so many different areas. Well, I'm not saying I'm good at any of them, but I, it, it's just the way my the way my mind works. And it's not even that I get bored. It's more like I get frustrated and I find some other material to play with and work out whatever it is I'm trying to work out. Okay. And so your recent project is bringing Disturbed Furniture back together. And yes. that was that a result of the film that was that was an exhibit at the Museum of Modern Art? Yes. Okay, can so you tell what, me a little bit about what that? What happened was around 2016, I started hearing about this show that was going to be at the Museum of Modern Art with some of my old buddies from New York who were part of this club where we first played, Club 57, that was, for want of a better term, like my living room. <laughs> um, the so living room for disturbed furniture. Well, it was just my living room. It's where, you know, you're, you can't go to sleep. You walk down five blocks and you're at a living room filled with cute boys and there's a little alcohol and there's a movie screening or some <laughs> weird performance. Yeah, it was a good living room. So, oh, so I heard about this show that was bubbling up at the Museum of Modern Art and um, they were they being the, the curators, they were really looking very carefully at who besides the, the centrifugal stars of that scene, who was, who was in the next level. So you have at the center, you know, you have Keith Haring and you have Jean-Michel Basquiat and you right. have Kenny Scharf and you have Anne Magnuson. And then you have the next levels. And um, I happen to have videos of the band from exactly that era. Wow. Shot by, edited by people that were part of that club. Um, Barry Schills, another great filmmaker friend who shot these four videos and uh, edited by Steve Brown, who did Nirvana's first couple of videos. Okay. He passed away from AIDS quite a few decades ago. But so there were so, there was so much talent just like, it was uh, kind of remarkable. So this show started coming together. Um, they decided they were interested, they being the curators of the show, Ron Magliozzi and Sophie Cavalucos, they wanted to acquire those videos that I didn't even have a copy of. Oh, wow. They were also very interested in um, some Super 8 films that I shot. I okay. had a moment of wanting to be a filmmaker, and I had a camera from... I'm not sure. I think I had borrowed it <laughs> from Columbia where I was dropping out, but I still had their camera on loan. <laughs> and I shot some short films inside Club 57. And apparently not very many people did that. Oh, we wow. Didn't, there is not a lot of footage inside the club that has um, that has lasted or could be found. So suddenly I had these valuable assets. So those were acquired. They also acquired uh, the footage that I shot that night in Chinatown for our first, the hit or a miss video. Right. So they acquired, they acquired three things that I was involved in shooting and directing and, you know, they're pretty raw. They were never really edited at all, or they're actually the, the, the four song videos were edited by Steve Brown, but the other stuff kind of sat in a drawer for 30 years. Wow. Yeah. So it's kind of remarkable that all this stuff got to come out into the light. That's an, that's an amazing story. And so once they contacted you about this footage, is that when you decided to get back in touch with uh, Tony and, and, and yes. the rest of the band? Yes, well, you know, Tony lives in England, and um, 
So we we at first were working with our former um, producer and engineer of the single, Steve Remote, who is still very much in the music business. So uh, he came on board at the very beginning of the reunion. Jorge Arevalo still lives in New York and Mick Oakleaf still lives in New York. So we, I, I told them about the show at MoMA and how our music was going to be screened and they got excited. And it wasn't like I knew there was going to be more than just one reunion gig. I had no idea what the response would be, right. how I would sound singing this music again after a long hiatus. Right. Um, but the response was really good. So we kept doing gigs over the course of the year that the show was up. And then I said, let's go in the studio. We got to I always wanted to make more vinyl with yeah. these people. And um, anyway, I feel like I'm rambling. No, I, not at all. That, that, that's what this whole this show is definitely about hearing these stories. I want to know about how this stuff comes to be. So I, this, this, is, this is awesome for me. Good, good. Thank so, you. so how was the experience in the studio different in doing the new EP compared to doing your first single? Very different, very different. First of all, um, there are options now. You know, there's digital. Right. We, we started out as a complete analog project in the spirit of the old days, found a studio in Brooklyn, um, and it was, how was it different? Um, I guess because we all have matured our ears have matured we know we have a better idea of what we're doing I, I don't know how to answer that how is it different the truth is i don't remember that much about the 80 recording okay well, that's fair i think my drummer mick probably has clear memories maybe he's not a spot i don't know but um it just felt uh it 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 felt long overdue it's something that i've probably filed back in my brain somewhere that i really wanted to do a record again and here i am doing another record again so it's it's very sweet it's very sweet the whole experience well the music is very tight it doesn't sound like you guys you know took a like a 30 something year hiatus <laughs> well Mick and Jorge and Shin Sakano, who plays bass on the record, um, they they play all the time. They are not just uh, they didn't take as long a break as I did from <laughs> their instrument. They they play all the time and they're very uh, they're very warmed up. So hit or miss is a track that was demoed and and, and back in the late seventies early eighties. What about the rest of the songs? Are those new compositions, old compositions, or a mix? Two of them are completely new. Ellen Paris is completely new, and Angel of Losses are completely new songs. Um, I started writing Angel of Losses about three years ago. I was doing a performance piece, and I think it was rabbi talking to a congregation and there the lights go out and it's about you know this wonderful allegory um so that's a new song were completely new and then in the front was a song from our old repertoire but it got a whole new funky middle section oh okay okay and those lyrics um there was always a kind of political activism undercurrent in the band um from the beginning when philip who was the first lead guitarist was in the band he was british he is british he's still very much alive um <laughs> He was he was quite politically minded. And, you know, 
Music has always been a form of activism. Certainly when right. I was growing up and, you know, Pete Seeger and Guthrie and Joan Baez and all those great singers and songwriters, um, that was that was there in the beginning and it's coming back with us in this reinvention of the band. Okay. This idea that, you know, it's not a coincidence that I feel inspired to write again this in this medium because I, I'm just flabbergasted by where we are right now as a country right. or as a world. I mean, Britain is getting their own dose of... <laughs> new, insane, mad leaders. So it's a five song EP. Is there a, a long play in the, uh, in the future for you guys? You know, I hope there is. I'm, I'm, I'm back on the horse or the bicycle or whatever this thing, <laughs> whatever metaphor you want. <laughs> um, and I feel, I feel good about the music and I feel it will depend a lot on if people actually respond to this record, buy it. Right. <laughs> I hope so. I would love to keep going and get back and do more recording with these guys. Um, they, they were so much fun. They are so much fun to work with. And they're coming to L.A. Yay! Oh, awesome. You guys going to be doing some shows out there then? We are doing shows out here. We're doing this great club called The Mint which has been here for a million years. Uh, and I've heard everybody, of yeah. lots of cool people play there. Uh, Billy Bob Thornton is playing there just a week before us. Oh, you know, cool. so you get, you get all kinds of music, blues, rock, probably metal, probably electronic. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so we're, we're, that's the main show is, um, the 21st of August. And that is supposedly the release date of the vinyl, but we, you know how dates shift. Oh yeah. Yes. But the CD will be ready. We decided to print some CDs too, because. Oh, perfect. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm a very tactile person. I, I, I need to have something physical in my hands or I don't feel like Me I too. actually have it. So. Me too. And it, exactly. either CD or vinyl. I don't, I, I'm not picky. I just need a physical copy. <laughs> How many records do you have? Uh, records, uh, probably. Uh, I don't. I don't have a huge vinyl collection. I've got probably a hundred or hundred and fifty, but I've got about thirty five hundred CDs. Wow. So yeah, <laughs> when I when I was uh, in my prime music collecting years, uh, I lived in New Jersey. And Where? Was, uh, in a little area named Bra uh, called Branchburg, right in like right in the middle of, of the state between it was right on the edge of Somerset and Hunterdon counties. So I was about an hour out of New York City and an hour out of Philly. So oh, once I got good some, location. yeah, once we got wheels, me and my buddies were always in, in, in one of the two going to see bands. So we would go to this uh, this record store in Princeton and they would get all of these promos from the from the records uh on the the radio stations in the area and so you would go in there and, and for like 20 bucks you could come out with like 10 or 12 cds because they're all promos from the from the radio stations and so i i think i know the store because my dad lived in princeton oh yeah the princeton record exchange yes 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 i have many cds from princeton records oh i love that place that that, was, that is a very very cool store oh it, it's fantastic it still is uh, from what i understand my uh, my buddy still lives in that area and, and goes every once in a while so yeah not nearly as big as it was when i was going there but it's still pretty big still pretty pretty cool yeah yeah and the same guys are still working there Wow. So, yeah. <laughs> Don't ever quit. Never. You can't give up Never on that Never give stuff. up. Never oh. give up. <laughs> so where can people find the album when it comes out? Well, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Hope there's an answer. And I, I, I want to say go to the website because I think that's where we will be putting information like what record stores are going to carry it. Okay. We... We haven't worked out the distribution yet. 
Um, and the website is super easy. It's just disturbedfurniture.com. That's nice and easy. Nice, nice and easy. Are you guys on, on social media? We are on Instagram, same thing, Disturbed Furniture. Perfect. Um, and we even have a Facebook page, though. I'm not in love with Facebook these days. No, no I, I, neither am I. I, it's, I just don't like what they're the, the way they keep monkeying with it, and it's just yeah. There's there's, yeah. there's a lot of improvements that could be made on that platform. Yes, indeed, <laughs> indeed, indeed. But this this is one thing that I am trying to adjust to is this this social media world because it hasn't been part of my life that much i mean my kid of course right but um you know as a form of promotion this is a new thing and it's it's a bit boggling mind-boggling it is and it's just i honestly i haven't figured it out yet i know i i post on on my show page post on my personal page and uh, you know, between the two of them i hope I get enough people to to listen to my shows and and support you guys and and help you guys out in any way I can. By the way, I do want to tell you that I I, I love Angel of Losses. That's my <gasps> favorite song off the EP. Oh, that makes me so happy because honestly, we worked our tuckuses off with that song. It went through so many incarnations. Oh, I mean, really? it, it just took a really long time to get it to a place where both Jorge and I were happy with it. So that makes me really happy. Oh, good. I'm glad. Good. That's, Thank it's, you. It's a very beautiful, delicate song. And I, I love it. Thank you. You know, I think one of, one of the great challenges was, and I, I, I sort of got the answer, but you know, the songs aren't all one, clearly one genre. Oh know? no, like not at all. Um, and I was afraid of that being sort of working against us. Like, oh, well, they should all be gothic or they should all be pop. And um, and then at a certain point, I guess somebody said, no, no, no. Oh, I know. It was Howard Wolfing who is uh, helping us guy. out with publicity. Yeah, he's very cool. And he said, well, what about Sergeant Peppers? And that was like, snap. Yeah. Oh, okay. You want to... Use the Beatles as a benchmark of this kind of. That's fine. That, I'll accept go. that. <laughs> well, it does. It, the styles in in the EP vary a lot, and it, that's one of the great things about it because it keeps it interesting. It's five songs, and you don't feel like you're listening to you know just five punk songs or or five rock songs or five folk songs. It's it definitely keeps you interested and and engaged in it. Excellent. That's good because it took 35 years to write these songs. <laughs> I hope it can't take another 35 years. I, I don't think I can wait that long. Oh, for the next, I wouldn't want to wait that long for more music. That, it, yeah. I'm really enjoying the EP and discovering the early, the first single too. That was really cool. Thank you. Thank you. Um, we're, we're happy that it um, gets some attention on you yield you YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, is there any way to see the video footage that w that became the moment? We, uh, well, thanks for asking because we actually are going to put it out there. I'm not sure what if it's going to be probably YouTube. Okay. But I'm not positive. Again, go to the website. Probably before the record even comes out, we're going to start streaming some of that old footage in fact literally a week ago i saw a video that my drummer found from 1981 at the peppermint lounge oh wow a full, a full show and it's really clear so we're going to show some of that video some of that show from 1981 and we're going to show some of the um the other stuff that was shot in those years that um is finally edited Oh, that's going to be absolutely fantastic. Yeah. So go to the website for all the information. That's the easiest. Oh, perfect. Well, thank you yep. so much for joining me tonight. I've, I've, 
I mean, I've taken up almost an hour of your time. I'd well, really gosh, it. thanks for having me. Thanks for listening and asking questions and being interested in an old fart like me. <laughs> well, the, you're making fantastic music, so it's 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 easy to to get interested in it. Thank you again. This has been a lot of fun. Oh, good. I'm glad. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.